Welcome back, everyone. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Ongdocs. In this week's episode, we're covering 2023 updates for localized bladder cancer, discussing common and uncommon pathologies, presentation, diagnostic workup, staging, and treatment options. And we're so excited to have Dr. Tom Powles and Dr. Brian Rinney from the Urologic Oncology Podcast, Euromigos, who are international experts in this field here to share their expertise on bladder cancer for these next two episodes. They don't require an introduction, but I'll have them briefly introduce themselves. Brian, do you want me to introduce you? Or are you going to introduce Please. Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, Brian Rooney uh, is a medical oncologist. He's at Vanderbilt. He's a great friend of mine. He does renal cancer, but actually looks after the whole of GU cancer. And he has, uh, and he led a number of programs, particularly in kidney cancer. Is that fair, Brian? Uh, that's fair. And Tom is a geo oncologist at the Barts in London. I've known Tom for, gosh, a long time. And he does both kidney and bladder cancer and recently got a standing ovation for bladder cancer that we may get into maybe on the next podcast. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for his coming. first standing ovation of his life, I might add. Thank you guys so much for being here. This is very exciting. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. And so to start this off, what are the most common types of bladder cancer? So we talk about urothelial cancer being the most common histology, also known as transitional cell. Risk factors for this include tobacco, occupational exposures, including workers in dye manufacturing and rubber, aluminum, or aluminum, as you might say in the UK. I think that's Uh, the correct pronunciation. But we will cover more variant histologies in next week's uh, episode. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's mostly urothelial. We talk about variant histology as a group. It's kind of like non-clear cell in kidney cancer, although I think probably less common uh, variant histology in bladder than it is in kidney. And and just like non-clear cell in kidney, we don't, there aren't dedicated series or treatments for those those folks. I mean, again, we're talking about localized, so I'm not sure it matters too much, but... Um, Brian, Brian and I did a Euromigos Cup at our annual meeting recently, and one of the questions in that was, in which country do we have the highest incidence of bladder cancer? And the answer is, of course, Egypt, as I think Petros Grivas, who, by the way, has a background of huge knowledge. He knows how fast light travels, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you really should know. Knowledge. Yes. yes, trivial knowledge. I mean, what he did in the past, in his, when he, during his informative years, would be interesting to go back and see this huge breadth of knowledge. But squamous cancer uh, of the bladder is actually very common in parts of North Africa, particularly Egypt, and associated with cystomyosis. And these variant histologies are causing quite a lot of, 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 of noise at the moment. And there was a work, some of the work by Bernadette um, from our group recently showed that the sarcomatoid subgroup responds really well to immune checkpoint inhibition. So I think it's really relevant to get this pathology right. The last thing I'm going to say around this issue is that we did a local review in Abacus 2 and a central review of variant histologies. And the concordance between the local and the central review was about only about 50%. And so this whole area, it just hasn't been looked at, I think, in enough detail. And, um, and it's an area of huge interest for the future because, you know, we're doing better now with urothelial cancer, but these other subsets were completely in the dark. So thank you guys for covering that. And so what is our initial workup for bladder cancer? So most commonly, patients present with hematuria or dysuria, and your PCP may do a urine cytology and then refer to urology where they will do a cystoscopy with biopsy. And then a formal 
TURBT, which stands for transurethral resection of the bladder tumor, will be done if there is visible cancer, underspinal or general anesthesia. And this is useful to determine if the tumor is muscle invasive or not. One important thing is that if there's no muscle on the specimen, you need to repeat this procedure. And this is something that commonly gets asked on board review questions. Absolutely. So no muscle, you're not sure if it's invading into the muscle. So you've got to repeat that biopsy. And I'll just jump in with a couple of things. So um, usually the first TUR, TURBT is sort of just in the urologist's office. So sometimes it's just a look, you know, they're not as, and then they have to take them back to do the more deep muscle resection. So just sort of a practical thing, you know, for, for patients, right. And for you to know, um, it's sort of an initial look, they might do a biopsy, you know, depending on the office setting. And then they usually have to take them back for the more deep, as you say, to get muscle. I will say that sometimes patients present with scans that are just, it's sort of clinically muscle invasive. You know, the, the urologist can't put a big hole in the muscle. So sometimes they just can't get the biopsy that contains muscle, but just, you can look at the scan and say, this patient has muscle invasive disease based on clinical parameters that happens, I would say not infrequently. Great. And so before we dive into muscle invasive localized bladder cancer, what is our goal for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? So the goal is to prevent recurrence and progression to muscle invasive disease. And these are primarily managed by urology, but there is an evolving role for medical oncology. Good. And so what are the stages of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Can you talk us a little bit through the TNM staging? Yes, I will. And then we'll get some pearls from Brian and Tom. So TA are non-invasive papillary lesions that have a low potential to invade. These are often treated with a single dose of intravesical chemotherapy, whether it's gemcitabine or mitomycin C within 24 hours of the TURBT. Then TIS are those carcinoma in situ, which can metastasize without clinical invasion. And then T1 invade the subepithelial connective tissue, including the lamina propria or the muscularis mucosa, and note that that's different than the muscularis propria. And then high-risk tumors are over three centimeters, or if you have in situ or T1 disease or multiple lesions, and those are treated with six weekly BCG doses within four weeks of the TURBT. And then if you have a CR, you can then do maintenance BCG up to three years. But then if there is no CR, there are different definitions that are important to know for urologists in terms of what is BCG unresponsive, and options for those include intravesical chemotherapy, including mitomycin, gemcitabine, with or without docetaxel, valrubicin, or we now have an intravenous option with pembrolizumab based on the Keynote 57 trial if you have TIS. And then as of 2022, the FDA also approved, which is a mouthful to say, but nadopharagene firadinovic, adenovirus <laughs> vector. <laughs> nice work. Just rolls yeah. off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Brian and Tom... What other polls do you have for non-muscle invasive? How often are you seeing these patients in your practice? Um, anything else to note um, that's coming out in this field? Tom, you go first. So I'm really excited about TAR200 and TAR210. This is based, This is known as the pretzel. Um, and just the thought of BCG where you squirt something into the bladder and you get the patients to roll around the bed for a bit and then you wee out, which I'm told is what, what happened. In fact, I've done a few intracycle BCGs. And if that's the wrong way of doing it, I'm going to slightly embarrassing. But you I'm told. You've given uh, it? I have. Yeah, I'm serious. I've done intracycle BCG and gem. So not, yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> not, not as a hobby. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so the issue is that doesn't seem very 21st century. And the principle of the pretzel is you can stick this plastic tube into the bladder, which or this tube into the bladder, 
which slowly over a period of weeks releases um, a drug, either gemcitabine or erdofitinib. And this is a sustained release uh, into the bladder of uh, an agent. Uh, and I think the detail of the agent is something we need to work on. But this seems to be much more progressive than this sort of catheterin and peeing the BCG out. And I, so I'm really excited about that. I'm anxious around the pembrolizumab, the ICI story, two big trials I'm really excited about, Potomac and Crest, big randomized phase three studies looking at ICI immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. If they are negative, I think the story will come to an end um, because we know that from a urology perspective, pembrolizumab hasn't been grabbed with both hands. And I think we've spoken to a number of urologists and on, on our podcast, and I think as a group, they're happier with, you know, the, the IL-15 superagonist or instiladrin or these intravesical therapies. And so my feeling on this area is that my, my hope is that we're going to transform the disease with TAR-200 and TAR-210. Yeah, I mean, this is a big topic. So I would just add that just to back up, I mean, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is, is far more common globally, right? And it tends to be a recurrent nuisance disease. Um, although obviously we're talking about preventing progression and progression of metastatic disease, which we as medical, medical oncologists treat. But, but this has largely up until the last, I don't know, a couple of years been in the realm of urologists. Uh, BCG is about as old of a drug as we have. I don't even know when, but it's, you know, decades old. It was sort of the first immunotherapy and it's, it's, it's pretty crude, right? As Tom said, you, the urologist puts it in the bladder and it's super uncomfortable for patients. I've never given it like Tom or received it, but I, but from patients, you know, what they tell me is it's really uncomfortable, right? It's meant to to inflame the bladder, which of course is uncomfortable, but it's been the standard of care for decades and decades. And then starting, um, I think it really started, FDA sort of put out some guidance because as you can imagine, drug development in this space is tricky, right? If you cut out a, a papillary tumor, then what's the, you know, how do you measure the effect of, of a drug? You know, you measure it by it not coming back. So FDA put out, I don't remember the year, it was a number of years ago, sort of guidance for industry in terms of drug development in this space and what it would look like. And I think that was an important first step for companies then to say, okay, we, we can develop drugs in this space. There are endpoints that, you know, are approval, approvable on a, from a regulatory standpoint. Um, Brian, I think, I think that caused innovation and I think that's really positive and it happens in the yep. US. I think we went to the EMA. We just would say it's impossible to do trials in this space because you've got to randomize. We're never going to get over the line. So I think the FDA has done a wonderful job in innovation in that area. My concern is I don't think the CR endpoint that's used is a great endpoint. So um, uh, and, and, I, my, and my deep down concern is these drugs that are being approved, we need to look at very carefully um, in terms of the long term follow up of these patients. Agreed. So Tom's talking about the, the Pembro study looked at CR rate at three months, which I think was 40%. I believe about half of those were durable at a year. Tom, correct me if I have the numbers wrong, but um, but some of these other approaches that Tom mentioned, the, the pretzel, which is a drug eluding device, you know, and, and other things, this IL-15 super agonist, et cetera, are, you know, especially in combination with checkpoints are producing response rates in, the, I believe, sort of 60, 70%. These are all single arm trials. They're all relatively small and there's large randomized trials ongoing. But this area, this systemic therapy or and or intravesical therapy for non-muscle invasive has exploded in recent years. Right. And so moving from non-muscle invasive to muscle invasive bladder cancer, Karin, can you tell us briefly the goal of treatment and then also go into more details of the staging for muscle invasive bladder cancer? And then Brian and Tom, of course, we're interested to hear your pearls in, in this umbrella of disease. 
Yes. So for muscle invasive, the goal is to maximize the chance of cure. And so we start at T2, which is bladder cancer, which invades the muscle or the muscularis propria. T3 invades perivesical tissues, and then T4 invades adjacent structures to the bladder. And all of those that qualify for neoadjuvant chemotherapy should receive it. And there's about a 5% overall survival benefit at five years. And the only approved regimen is gemcitabine cisplatin. It's important to note that carboplatin is not recommended in the neoadjuvant space. And really important to know cisplatin eligibility criteria. So you need to have a good performance status, ECOG of zero to one, creatinine clearance over 50 or 60, depending on where you practice, neuropathy of grade one or less, hearing loss of grade one or less, and then no significant heart failure. And then for cisplatin ineligible, there are ongoing trials for neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And one other option to GEMSYS is Dosense MVAC, which includes an anthracycline. So you do have that cardiotoxicity that you need to be aware of and um, consider echocardiogram prior to given. And um, this can be given for three to six cycles. And the drugs um, in Dosense MVAC are methotrexate, vimblastine, doxorubicin, and cisplatin. And then they're given with DCSF support. So Brian and Tom, what other pearls do you have for neoadjuvant uh, treatments for muscle invasive? When do you give Dosense MVAC? How many cycles do you give? Yeah, again, another big topic. Um, so I think the standard of care for muscle invasive disease, and let's put aside trimodality therapy, which I think we're going to talk about in a second, is for eligible patients, neoadjuvant cisplatin-based therapy, kind of historically Dosense MVAC, although a lot of folks just use GEMSYS for convenience and ease to the patient. Um, and, and the number of cycles is also a bit all over the map, but, you know, sort of three to six, three, and three to four in a lot of the studies. Some people use six if people have clinically positive nodes, et cetera. Um, and then radical cystectomy. Um, as the there was a study, there was a study recently called the VESLA trial, which did the six cycles of dose dense MVAC versus four cycles of GEMSYS. The results were pretty gray. I thought some people think it's a positive trial. Other people think it's a negative trial. The problem we have with neoadjuvant therapy is not the detail of the drugs. It's just not enough patients are getting neoadjuvant gemesis. If you look at the uptake, it's very low. And the reason why for that is the oncology and the surgical, particularly communities, not totally bought into it. And so actually, the issue shouldn't be about which drugs and how many cycles. Four plus four or three cycles of gemesis are fine. It's actually about giving the drugs more widely in the community. And that's what we need to focus on. Agreed. And that the platinum eligibility, I mean, you know, sort of Makalski published this a number of years ago. I think most of us will give platinum-based therapy down to 50, uh, a GFR of 50, you know, mm -hmm. even though less than 60 sort of the, the official criteria. You know, to me, it's GFR over 50, sort of just that eyeball performance test um, and not requiring hearing aids, right? You know, the grade one, grade two hearing loss, I don't know the definitions, but if somebody has or needs a hearing aid to me, that that's enough. That's sort of my practical threshold. And do you do audiology exams for perhaps more elderly patients at baseline? Sometimes I won't do them unprompted, but if it's like, you know, it's often a husband and wife sitting there. And if I say, you know, Hey, are there, are there any hearing issues? You have a hearing aid and the husband says no, but the wife looks at him like, well, you need one. <laughs> then, I might, <laughs> then I might say, you know, let's do this test. Or if I'm, maybe I'm looking for a reason not to give it, you know, they're otherwise yeah. eligible, but with the eyeball test, I'm a little nervous, et cetera. Um, so I don't do a lot of them. You know, I would say, you know, every couple months I might do one. Um, I don't know what your practice is, Tom. Oh, I don't believe in PET scans, by the way. So I know PET scan is popular here, but I'm not a believer. Um, Carla, one of our fellow Euromigos, did a randomized trial. She showed in the grand scale of things, it didn't appear to make any difference. 
Um, and so I don't think we should be doing PET scans. I think they just cause confusion. Um, I, I and, uh, totally agree. Tom and, and I really so, agree. I totally agree with you. And this is one <laughs> thing, certainly in the U.S., we, our, our oncologists, we way over order PET scans, right? We think it's mm-hmm. good for every cancer and good in every circumstance. And, and mm-hmm. this is one of many where it's not. Agreed. And so segueing from neoadjuvant chemotherapy to adjuvant treatments for muscle invasive bladder cancer, can we talk about those? Yes. So well, if I'm, we... not, I'm not really allowed to talk about those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about it. Tom. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so for, for neoadjuvant, if no neoadjuvant chemotherapy is given, then adjuvant chemotherapy should be considered. Um, and so you can consider, you know, that same gem cis regimen in the adjuvant space. Um, one update that we didn't talk about last time we did this topic was um, the approval of nivolumab based on Checkmate 274 for patients who either had not received neoadjuvant chemo and had high-risk disease at time of cystectomy, so T3 or T4A disease or nodal involvement, or if they received neoadjuvant chemo and still had persistent disease at the muscle invasive disease at the time of cystectomy, so T2 or greater or nodal disease. And there is a PFS benefit there, but we await OS. And then there was also recently a press release about adjuvant pembrolizumab from the ambassador trial meeting its PFS endpoints. So we may be hearing about that sometime next year. Yeah. So I, um, you know, the data for adjuvant chemotherapy has always been pretty weak. And before immune therapy, if patients didn't get neoadjuvant and and you saw them as a medical oncologist, you might give adjuvant kind of borrowing and and saying, well, perioperative therapy is perioperative therapy, whether that's true or not. Um, now for me, the paradigm is neoadjuvant chemotherapy if possible, and then somewhat separately consider adjuvant therapy based on the criteria of, of the checkmate study that, that you outlined, Kareen. Um, there's a lot we don't know about that. You know, it looked like the PDL1 positive patients benefited more, although I don't think that's really done routinely. I don't do it. Um, and we've never seen OS data, which is a, which is why Tom's not allowed to talk about it because he and Makalski get into it. We don't know why we haven't seen the data. It's been a while. Um, you know, I do use adjuvant nivolumab. I think it's very reasonable in select patients, you know, with counseling and all that, you know, about risks and benefits, et cetera. Um, so I think it is a standard of care. We haven't seen the ambassador data yet. I don't know when, presumably ASCOGU maybe or something. Mm -hmm. I assume it's going to look similar to the nivolumab data, but we'll see. And so our next- So so I am going to say something actually. I've changed changed my mind. Yeah. So listen, this is important. We think if we're going to, we're over-treating at least half the patients, they're not going to relapse. So half the patients are getting a year of adjuvant therapy. They don't need it. If there's no survival advantage in that setting, we need to think very carefully about what we're doing. Putting people's harm's way, no benefit. So let's just be very careful about how we define benefit. I know in the US that disease-free survival is seen as a benefit because no one wants their cancer to come back. But now we have really active first-line therapies like EV Pembro. Why would you want to give an adjuvant therapy with survival benefit to unselected patients when you can just wait for the cancer to come out and then give effective therapy? So that's my first point. The second point, which I think is equally important, although I'm not sure any of my points are important, to be honest. But the second point is the ambassador pembrolizumab trial is really relevant. Because if that doesn't come in with the survival benefit, we don't know the data yet, and we're waiting to see it. But if that doesn't come in survival either, we're then beginning to see a thing where um, where the teslizumab study, no survival. Ambassador, we don't know yet. And then nivolumab, we haven't seen yet. I just really, really hope we get to see that pembrolizumab survival signal because we may or may not. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. So Tom, that day, that day, let me ask you a question. Cool. Yeah, far away. Um, so in the adjuvant setting, you're always going to over-treat patients, right? If you treat 100 patients, you're always. Gonna- 
no, 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 no. With CTDNA, you don't overtreat patients. Oh, we can wait, select patients better. Hold on, hold on. Let's put CTDNA aside for one second. But you would agree with me in the adjuvant setting, there are patients who won't recur. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. Okay. So by definition, if you treat patients, you are going to treat patients who you can only harm and not benefit. Yes. Right. So I, I just want to make, because I think it's a really important point in that if, if it's just what you're saying is if it's just a disease-free survival benefit, you're not comfortable with that over-treatment. Whereas if there's an overall survival benefit, then you're more comfortable with it. Yeah. Because then you know that even those patients that were in harm's way, even though despite that, overall, the whole group is living longer. Yeah. So some patients lose, but overall, the, co- the group gains. Whereas at the moment, all we know is some patients lose, but we don't know the whole group gains. And I don't see just delaying the time for the cancer to come back, particularly when now we have effective first-line therapies as the, as the panacea, the new, the new dawn. That's not the new dawn of bladder cancer. That's not what we've been working for the last 20 years to achieve. We need to do better than that. And I think that's what CTDNA can do. Good. I think those points are all very valid and things that we need to be cognizant and considerate of. And so what are the definitive treatment um, cystectomy or trimodality therapy um, for bladder cancer? Oh, yes. So one of the options, if patients um, do not want to undergo cystectomy and they're candidates for trimodal therapy, which is also referred to as TMT or also chemoradiation, um, you have to have these criteria. You have to have a complete CRBT, so the tumor is fully resective, clinical T2 or T3A disease, absence of hydronephrosis, absence of extensive carcinoma in situ, smaller tumors under five centimeters, and good function of the bladder. And the chemotherapy options for definitive chemoradiation of the bladder include either cisplatin or gemcitabine alone, or also you have the option of 5-FU with mitomycin C. And the length of radiation treatment is typically four to six weeks, and this will be decided with the radiation oncologist. And side effects of radiation can include bladder and bowel dysfunction, and you do need lifelong surveillance with cystoscopies. So wondering, Brian and Tom, um, if you have a preference in terms of these regimens or how you decide and how often you're giving this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in the U.S., we do a lot more cystectomies overseas. We do a lot more trimodal therapy. And and it's really not right or wrong. I think we could probably certainly, we, the U.S., could probably do more of it. We did a a few podcast series with um, a urologist and a radiation oncologist about this. And it's it's been a debated area for a while. Who are the right candidates? Are there really equivalent outcomes? Certainly in the U.S., the young, healthy patients tend to go to cystectomy. The older, comorbid patients tend to get trimodal therapy. So kind of like surgery versus radiation and prostate, it's, it's obviously not a fair comparison right? And, and, and big randomized trials have failed to accrue maybe for obvious reasons. So I th- it's very institutional dependent. So we have a very active radiation oncology group who's, who likes doing this. And so we, we do a fair amount of it. Other institutions that are more surgery dominated, you know, do more surgery. And again, I don't think it's right or wrong. I don't necessarily have a favorite regimen. I think the five of you mitomycin is one of the most proven. I also tend to use a lot of just low-dose gemcitabine because again, the patients I'm doing it in, um, you know, are, are this elderly comorbid patient. So I think it's, it's definitely important to know about in an ideal world, every patient would get, would see a surgeon and a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist. I'm sure that's not happening for a variety of reasons, but it is a, an important modality with good long-term outcomes. And maybe the last thing I'll say is all the criteria you mentioned are accurate. Although when we talk to the radiation oncologist, they, they will sort of debate some of that and say, you know, it doesn't have to be that limited, you know, based on tumor size and some of the other things you mentioned. So it's it's an evolving field, but important. 
I mean, my take on this is with the radiotherapy data, when you look under the bonnet in detail, what you see is not always exactly what you get. And people say there's equivalence to surgery, but there's not been a randomized trial. The randomized phase three studies were done 20 years ago, and they didn't, they didn't either hit survival or they didn't hit their primary endpoints. Um, there's a lot of exploratory data which has been taken down and said, this is definitely true. I'm not sure that's right. Um, you know, the, on the other hand, the surgical groups, well, again, you know, going back in time, there's not that much robust data. Although I have to say there have been two recent randomized phase three studies of robotic versus open cystectomy, and the outcome data of those trials are really good. So I think those people who say there's definitely equivalence, I'm not there. And when, when I looked at the data in detail, I wasn't as convinced as I was when I started. And yes, there's the recent MassGen and there's the recent um, Canadian um, trimed, TMT, trimodality therapy group um, retrospective analysis. Um, but it was published in Lancet Oncology. But even then, you look at that and say, okay, one group gave neoadjuvant therapy, the other one gave adjuvant therapy. It's a retrospective. Yeah, the, the outcome grade data was great. But I just kind of feel that we need to, when we, you know, we just need to be on a level playing field. And I think we need to see more randomized radiotherapy data. The good news is there's some randomized radiotherapy trials with immune checkpoint inhibition. I'm really hopeful that they may be positive. Uh, I'm a fan of radiotherapy. Wouldn't it be nice if patients could keep their bladders? But at the same time, I don't quite think there's equipoise as it currently stands. I currently think the data for surgery is stronger. I'd like to stop doing surgery altogether. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think we're there yet. I, one more thing to mention is there have been some recent data. Makalski published something in Nature Medicine about um, neoadjuvant chemoimmune therapy and then for patients with a clinical CR um, as defined by scans and cystoscopy and cytology, I think. They, they didn't go to cystectomy. So I think what we're going to see is a movement away from radical surgery over the next years and beyond. As we get more effective drugs, you can imagine EV Pembro in this setting, as we get drugs that can not only shrink tumor, but control them durably. I think we'll look back long after Tom and I are retired and say, gosh, wasn't that crazy that we were whacking out all these bladders with radical cystectomy? I think we'll get there, although it's going to be a while. Great. And so I think this was an awesome episode talking about localized bladder cancer. And so what are our key takeaways? So remember that the primary histology in bladder cancer is urothelial or transitional cell and know that key difference of non-muscle invasive staging versus muscle invasive, which involves the muscularis propria or beyond. And for those that qualify, consider new adjuvant chemotherapy with gemcitabine cisplatin or docense MVAC followed by cystectomy, and then consider adjuvant nivolumab if they didn't get neoadjuvant chemo or if there's still muscle invasive disease uh, based on a recent approval in the last few years. And also make sure to consider chemo radiation as a bladder preservation option for patients that qualify. Thank you, Brian and Tom, for joining us on this episode. Any final takeaways for localized bladder cancer? I mean, for me, I was surprised about how much Brian knew about bladder cancer, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a little surprised as well. I, we got some good notes beforehand. That's where it came from. <laughs> Awesome. So thank you guys so much for joining us and stay tuned for updates on metastatic bladder cancer with the Euromigos next week. Also be sure to check out their podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well for a deeper dive into all things GU Oncology. Um, thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>